Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thanks for joining me today. I'm so pleased to have as my guest Douglas Smith, an award-winning historian, author, and translator. He's written five books about Russia, and the one he's here to talk with me about today is called Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs. It's a spectacular book. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So people have a lot of preconceived ideas about Rasputin, a sorcerer, a madman. He's become an almost mythological figure in world history. What did you see in Rasputin that prompted you to write a book about him? And how is your book different than some of the others out there? Yeah, well, that's that's very true of the way you describe him. That's def- definitely how he sort of lives in the popular imagination. Um, I really had no long standing intention of of writing about Rasputin, it, it, it grew out of unexpectedly a previous book I did called Former People, which was the story of what happened to the Russian elite after the revolution of 1917. And as I was researching that book, I had to do a lot of reading about sort of the final years of Tsarist Russia. And I was, I was really quite taken aback by how every source I seemed to look at, um, there was the figure of Rasputin. And I, uh, you know, I had an academic training, eight years in a PhD program in Russian history and years of writing on Russia, and I'd, I'd never really expected to, to see that he had been that much a part of sort of the, the mental fabric of, of late Tsarist Russia. And so that sort of got me thinking about him. Um, and I started poking around in a couple of the established biographies, and I, I came away a bit disappointed with what I was reading um, in my opinion, they were all a bit um, simplistic in their depiction of him. They seemed to present him in almost a cartoonish sort of way as this 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 holy devil, you know, the saint who who sinned, the mad monk sort of thing. He didn't seem to be a real, fully rounded, living being, and that sort of is what uh, set me off on what ended up to be a, a six year journey trying to fathom who this man really was. I'd like to ask you about his early life. I know you write that there isn't a lot of information on his childhood, but if you wouldn't mind talking about what we do know about those first years of his life into early adulthood. Yeah, that is definitely true. Basically, the first 30-odd or so years of his life are something of a black hole, uh, which has been a challenge to all biographers. Um, He was born in 1869, in a small village in western Siberia called Pakrovskaya on the Tura River uh, into a sort of typical Siberian peasant family. We 
we know that his mother had had several children, all of whom pretty much had died, uh, um, either in childhood or infancy. Um, he was the first uh, child to to survive, and his life, from what we know early on, was was really going to be that of the typical Russian peasant, which would have been, you know, working in the fields, tending church on Sundays getting married young, having children, and sort of continuing this endless sort of cycle. Um, I did myself go out to Siberia for this book. I'm a firm believer in when you write a biography of someone, you need to try to track them through their life and visit those places they lived in and try to soak up as much as you can. And, and also there are archives out there uh, in two neighboring cities, Tobolsk and Tumien. Um, and it was interesting. In, in the city of Tobolsk, I did find information about his youth that had escaped uh, all previous biographers. Um, there was a, a few documents um, testifying to the fact that when he was a, a teenager, he had uh, basically cussed out what was what we would consider the local mayor of his village, and spent uh, two days uh, in the local jail. For his foul language and, and unruly behavior um, doesn't seem like a huge discovery, but it really is because it's something that had eluded us for, for over 100 years. And it does speak to the great, uh, if you will, unruliness, the independence, um, and even at times um, temper about Rasputin that people had often mentioned but this this offered what I thought was some really solid proof for the very first time about about his young years. He gets married too, doesn't he? Can you talk about his his wife and children? He began going on small pilgrimages to various churches and monasteries and holy sites in the in the area not far from from Pokrovskaya, his hometown, and he and he met on one of those uh, a young woman named Praskovia, who was also a peasant like he was. And they they married not long after that after that meeting and ended up having three children, uh, a son Dmitri, uh, a daughter Matriona, who's better known by the name Maria, and then a third daughter Varvara. And um, his wife Praskovia is kind of a cipher. We don't really know much about her. She doesn't make many appearances in the written record. She was, from what we can tell, a long suffering woman. Living with Rasputin was not was not easy uh, for for a spouse, but she seems to have been a quiet, um, supportive type figure who um, stayed by his side, if you will, through through his entire life, and then um, ended up um, being sent off basically to the Gulag after the revolution, along with her son Dmitri and, and his wife and, and child. Sort of a very tragic ending, ending to what was not always an easy life. So Rasputin has a radical change in his life. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, we don't know exactly what happened. Um, it's, it's described in various sources, and, and even he talks about it in these sort of small autobiographical writings that he did, that at uh, at one point he experienced some sort of a holy vision, um, you know, that he saw the Virgin Mary over him and 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 felt compelled to begin um, going on these pilgrimages kind of thing where he, he met his wife on to various holy sites in the area in search of religious uh, enlightenment. And from that point on, he's in his late 20s when this happened. So he was not a young man by by those days when, you know, life did not last as long as it does now. But he he, he would pick up and leave home and leave his wife and children for extended periods and wander across the vast Russian empire as what the Russians call a strannik or a holy pilgrim. And there was something like a million of these people at the time around the turn of the century who literally just wandered almost as if they were beggars from church to church, monastery to monastery, often in rags, sometimes in fetters, often barefoot. And it was, it was part of, of, religious life in late Tsarist Russia and he became one of these pilgrims um, and he, he writes about this in his in his autobiographical uh, sketches and he and he talks about um, the difficulties of it the challenges how he was often humiliated by the better ups in society the way he was often robbed and, and uh, beaten by by thieves 
Um, and it became, if you will, sort of his university. And it was through those, those years of pilgrimage that he came to know Russia and that he came to know the breadth of Russian society all the way from the lowest of criminal elements and the poorest of beggars all the way up to Russian uh, aristocrats and high prelates of the church. And it, it really did teach him much about himself, his own powers. It taught him a bit of literacy, which he gained at the time. And he also absorbed the the scriptures, the holy gospel, if you will. And he almost learned it by rote, by memorization, and was able henceforth to 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 quote and cite scripture and infuse it with this sort of popular peasant language that in a way sort of gave it a sense of immediacy and relevancy and life that it was often lacking when you had sort of uh, more formally trained theologians trying to discuss religion. And these were some of the things that really made him stand out and that helped attract attention to him later. And this is the Russian Orthodox Church, right? Yes, exactly. This is all Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, Russia obviously adopted Christianity uh, from uh, from Greece, from Byzantium, uh, way back in the you know 988 uh, under um, Grand Prince Vladimir. So it's it's not Catholicism or Protestantism, but it's it's the Eastern Orthodox branch of Christianity. A lot of people know him now by his photographs. His appearance is, is so striking. His eyes are especially intense and a little creepy to some. Could you talk a little about his physical appearance? Yeah, he was, um, from what we can tell, a, a little bit above average height. One thing about him that is is often not really accurately portrayed is that he was he was never overweight. Um, there was a movie a few years ago about his life starring the French actor Gérard Depardieu, which was a terrible job of miscasting. Depardieu is probably a good 150 pounds overweight and a bit phlegmatic and sluggish. Um, Rasputin stuck to a pretty rigid diet his, his whole life and he he was thin, he was taut, he was wiry. People say that he had this sort of electricity to his movements and was often sort of a herky-jerkiness to them. Um, he wore his hair long, as you know, and he had that very iconic beard. But um, if there's one thing that people tend to remember about him, it's it's obviously the eyes. Uh, they were sort of a greenish gray in color, um, very deep-seated in his eye sockets, and they seem to sort of have this penetrating gaze. Now, this is something that we see from his photographs, and I think it's something that he, uh, to be quite honest, I think he cultivated. I think he... he had a good sense of uh, the power of his eyes, the power of his gaze on people. And it's it's something that he consciously, I think, developed and played with as as a way of, of expressing his power, if you will, and conveying the, the aura of mystery and, and sanctity that uh, was part of his personality. So he probably wouldn't be known today if he hadn't befriended the family of Tsar Nicholas II. Most of us know the story of the family, but would you mind giving a, a refresher? Who were they and what was their place in Russian history? Right. So at the time um, of Rasputin's life in the late 18th, early 19th, or late 19th, early 20th century, um, Russia was, was a monarchy ruled by a czar, which is essentially a king or emperor. And um, the, the reigning house, the, the dynasty, was the Romanov family who came to power in Russia in 1613. Um, and so they had been on the throne and ruling Russia for for th- almost quite 300 years when Rasputin first appeared. The czar at the time was Nicholas II, and his wife was actually a German-born woman by the name of, of Alexandra. Um, and they came to the throne in the um, 1890s after the death of Nicholas's father, Alexander III. Now, Alexander III had been a very strong and powerful man, um, sort of an iron-fisted ruler of, of the empire, if you will, very much a conservative uh, autocrat. His son, Nicholas, um, by contrast, was was notoriously weak-willed, um, a bit of a, a pushover, someone who really never wanted the throne and was not really temperamentally fit 
for that responsibility and that great power that, that came with that position. Um, and they were both, but especially Alexandra, were standoffish from the official court circles. They kept the nobility and the um, top aristocracy somewhat removed from them and lived a very sort of private existence in the palaces, seeing a, a very limited number of people, something that led to a good deal of resentment among the Russian elite who are used to having more access to the ruler and to court. And Alexandra was someone who was very intrigued by all forms of spirituality and mysticism. Um, and before Rasputin even made his way to the, to the throne, she was enthralled by a French mystic charlatan who appeared um, around 1901, 1902, um, before Rasputin did. And we can, we can talk about that as a sort of a pre-chapter to, uh, to Rasputin, if you want. Sure, sure. I'd love to hear about that. The story of this, this Frenchman is really intriguing and, and is a fascinating chapter in the history of the lives of Nicholas and Alexandra, but also uh, is an important part, I think, and I write about it at length, to understanding the biography of Rasputin himself. It was a man by the name of Monsieur Philippe, a Frenchman from Lyon, who was a self-styled uh, mystic, uh, mesmerizer, magnetizer, what have you, who claimed to have all sorts of magical, mystical powers. And he was brought um, to Russia by a few members of the extended Romanov family who were very taken with his teachings and ideas and they presented him uh, at court to Nicholas and Alexandra, and they very immediately were taken with him, and they began to call him our friend, and they would meet frequently with him uh, in the palace, and he would he would talk to them about the visions he had and prophecies and things like that. He also gave them advice on on even how to run the empire, and and that sort of thing, and they would sit and listen to him expound on all sorts of all sorts of topics. He also claimed mystical, strange powers that would help the Empress Alexandra give birth to a son. Now, the Empress's one job in life was to do this, was to produce a son and heir to the Russian throne. Uh, females were not allowed to become rulers of, of, of Russia ever since the reign of Tsar Paul I uh, in the final years of the 18th century. Now, Alexandra gave birth to four daughters in a row. And there was a great deal of concern that she was not going to be able to produce the needed heir. And, and this Monsieur Philippe claimed that he had these, these uh, strange powers that would actually produce a, a, a boy. And she believed, uh, Alexander believed that he could do this. Um, and he was around them for several years at court. But it produced a good deal of gossip and a good deal of rumors that the emperor and the empress had fallen under the sway of a foreign charlatan that Russia's sort of independence almost, if you will, was under threat. And the, the controversy surrounding him became so great. Um, and there were so many people close to Nicholas and Alexander that were so upset with this man's influence that the Tsar and Alexander were forced to send him off and make him go back to France. But before he left, he told them not to worry, that even though he would no longer be at their side, a new friend would come, and they need only be patient, and this, this new friend would take the place of Monsieur Philippe. And what's interesting is it isn't all that long after that, in November of 1905, that Rasputin is brought to the palace to meet with Nicholas and Alexandra. And very quickly, both the emperor and the empress realize that this man, this strange religious holy man from Siberia, is indeed the future friend that Monsieur Philippe had told him was coming. And so it, it really sunk in deeply with them that this was part of some larger prophecy that had been foretold to them. How exactly did, did they meet, if I might ask? Yeah, Rasputin uh, came to Petersburg um, around 1904, and he met with high church officials, bishops, archbishops, and they were all very taken with his uh, way of talking about faith, religion, and God. There was a great interest in these 
peasant holy men at the time, these uh, religious figures who were not brought up in seminaries and theological academies and what have you, but that these sort of living, breathing um, representations of, of Christian faith um, that rose up from time to time from the peasant masses. And very quickly, Rasputin became quite well known in Petersburg in certain circles, and um, he was introduced to members of the extended Romanov family who were um, very impressed with, with this, this Siberian holy man. And they then um, set up a meeting at the palace with Nicholas and Alexander for Rasputin. This was in November of 1905. And um, we know from Nicholas's diary when they first met and how long they, they sat. And it was clear that, that from the very beginning, um, Rasputin had made a great uh, impact on Nicholas and Alexandra, and they were very taken with what he had to say. And, and they very quickly came to believe that this was the friend that Monsieur Philippe uh, had foretold, that this was going to be the man who would help to gu guide and advise them on uh, religious matters, spiritual matters, but would also become important uh, political matters as well. Well, yeah, as long as we're on the subject of political matters, w would you explain the, the political climate during the time when Rasputin was ingratiating himself into the lives of the royal family? Yeah, well, the timing of his appearance is really uh, important. Um, you know, many of your listeners obviously know about the, the revolutions of 1917, uh, the February Revolution, which leads to the downfall of the Romanov dynasty. Uh, and then later in the year, the Bolshevik Revolution, when uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized power from what was then known as the Provisional Government uh, in October, November of 1917. But there was a precursor to the 1917 revolutions um, in 1905, a massive uprising um, throughout Russia that led to um, violence and strikes across many parts of, uh, of Russia. And really came very close to bringing down the Romanov dynasty. Nicholas was forced to make serious concessions to the revolutionary demands. He had to create a parliament known as the Duma. He had to um, essentially create a free public press and give in to a host of, of other demands, civil rights and political rights. And it was amidst all this chaos and uncertainty that Nicholas met Rasputin. And so he was, in a sense, at a, at a weak and vulnerable moment in his reign and, and, and life. And he was, he was looking for advice. He was looking for guidance and counsel. And there's a remarkable letter that has survived in the Russian archives, often overlooked by previous biographers, that Rasputin wrote to Nicholas right after this initial meeting. And what's remarkable about it is it shows from the very beginning Rasputin was offering political advice and that this wasn't something that came along later. He wrote Nicholas of the need to stay strong and to firm and to defend the autocracy and not to give in to the demands of the revolutionaries seeking to turn Russia into a sort of democratic type government of the sort seen in the West. And it's a remarkable letter. I mean, Nicholas did have to give in to some of the demands, but it, it shows that from the very beginning, Rasputin was offering political advice to Nicholas and not just um, religious sucker, if you will. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. 
But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So during this time, Rasputin becomes known as a healer. How does he get this label? Well, along with offerings spiritual and religious guidance and, and counsel, some begin to believe that Rasputin himself is, is holy uh, and that um, through his touch or word or prayer, he can heal. Now, this never becomes really widespread, this understanding. It's limited more to a, a small coterie of his female followers, including the Empress Alexandra. Now, Alexandra does give birth to a son eventually, a boy by the name of Alexei, who was the heir to the throne. Obviously, many of your listeners know that he was born a hemophiliac, which he had inherited from, from his mother, um, the bleeding disease. And his life is always seems to be hanging by by a thread. There's always this this fear that he will he will die of hemophilia whenever he falls or bumps himself. He starts bleeding beneath the skin and and it swells and becomes distended and incredibly painful and, and dangerous. And this is a constant, of course, source of worry and concern for Nicholas and Alexandra. Now, some people believe that the reason that Rasputin became so influential at court and had such great power over Nicholas and Alexander is that he was able to cure Alexei's bouts of bleeding. And some have written that that was the reason that they reached out to him uh, and brought him to court. This is simply not true. They were interested in religious holy men regardless of whatever impact they might have on the health and well-being of the heir to the throne. However, as time goes on, when little Alexei does hurt himself, Alexandra does reach out to Rasputin and seeks his help in calming the boy's suffering. Now, exactly what he did, how he influenced the boy's health is, is murky stuff. And I spent a lot of time trying to make sense of this. You know, the, the sources that we have, typically memoirs and letters and things, are all very contradictory. Um, some claim that he had no impact on the boy's health. Others claim that all he had to do was touch little Alexei and that would stop the bleeding. Some have even argued um, those sources that are clearly not reliable but have gained a good deal of currency that, in fact, Rasputin, working with a woman named Anna Virubova, who was a good friend of uh, Alexandra, would secretly administer poison to the boy, which would make him start to bleed, which would then lead Alexandra to go to Ale uh, Rasputin seeking his help, and then they would stop administering this poison to the boy, and the boy would become healthy again, 
and Alexandra would assume that this was the work of Rasputin, but in fact, it was simply the nefarious uh, behind-the-scenes actions of he and Virubhava that were really the reasons for the boys' problems in the first place. Now, that's completely absurd, but a lot of people came to believe these sorts of myths and rumors and things like that. For me, what I think might well have happened, and this is the best explanation that I can give, we now are beginning to understand much better the sort of mind-body connection as it, as it concerns health and the degree to which mental states govern physical health is slowly becoming better understood. It's still very much a gray area, but there are places like Harvard and UCLA that are actually now creating institutes in mind-body health. Um, there's an amazingly uh, insightful book that came out by a British journalist, writer, science writer, and the book's called Cure, that delves into this kind of thing, the degree to which, you know, pain can be managed incredibly well through distraction, um, through mental imaging and this kind of thing, sometimes m more effectively even than, you know, all sorts of pills and injections and, and what have you, that even, you know, sufferers of, of serious illness and disease um, report feeling better just through conversations with doctors, even without procedures being done and what have you. And I think it's in this realm that we need to look to understand what influence Rasputin had over safeguarding the health of, of Alexei. There was no cure for hemophilia. There were no even treatments for hemophilia then. And if anything, when the doctors got their hands on him and poked and prodded and moved and, and, and what have you and tried to figure out what was going on with him, they clearly made the bleeding worse. Um, it made it even harder for the blood to clot. And one of the things that, that Rasputin did was he was he would always tell Alexandra, and this only happened a few times, that the doctor should leave the boy alone. Leave him alone. Let him rest. So I think that was one thing that was helpful. The second thing was Rasputin would always tell Alexandra, have no fear. The boy will be fine. He will survive. And Alexandra really, really believed Rasputin's words. And she helped conveyed this conviction to her son. And I think there was, it sounds a bit absurd, but the more you read about these sorts of things, I think it's, it's the most logical thing that she, together with Rasputin, literally sort of willed Alexei back, back to health, gave him the confidence to believe that, yes, he was in pain and suffering, but it would end, it would go away, and he would be well. And I think it's in this area of the sort of the mind-body connection that we need to to, to focus, to understand whatever sort of effect Rasputin may have had in, in, in helping Alexei survive. Now, it must be stated that he never cured him of hemophilia, that, that Alexei remained afflicted with the disease throughout his life until he was murdered along with the rest of his family in 1918 when they were all shot by uh, the Bolsheviks in Yekaterinburg. So... Rasputin, while in St. Petersburg, develops a pretty notorious reputation as far as his personal life goes. Tell us, if you would, what you discovered in your research. What is fact and what is pure myth regarding the stories of his debaucheries? Right. Well, one of the things that it seems to me is, is beyond doubt is that he was, uh, he was quite a lech. <laughs> I think his Christianity was sincere. His belief in God was definitely sincere. But he was an earthy, sensual being, if you will. Um, and this is something that even his his daughter Maria, who wrote several memoirs uh, about her life and, and about her father, even if you go back to her earliest memoirs, that I think are the most honest ones, she wrote them later in life and added all sorts of nonsense that, is not in any way true, but I think she needed to make money and so I had to make the books more exciting. But even in her early memoirs, she talks about the fact that her father took lovers, had mistresses, and I think this is something that is beyond doubt. There are some Russian historians today who insist that all those stories were in fact lies created by his enemies. Um, but I think that's going too far. Um, he was something of a serial groper. Um, any woman who sat down on a Sofa within arm's reach tended to be pawed and stroked and rubbed. Um, 
often in fairly intimate places, uh, without first being asked, um, there's a good deal of, of evidence, solid evidence that, that corroborates these sorts of things. Um, he loved to dance. He loved to drink. He loved to be swept away by sensual experience. And I think this is something that is, is definitely true. And then obviously this gave rise to, to all sorts of stories that not only did he take lovers, but that, you know, he had deflowered, you know, all the young aristocratic ladies of Petersburg that engaged in wild orgies that would go on for days and days. This stuff simply belongs to the, the realm of myth and, and legend and, and gossip. But one of the things that I tried to do in the book, which I think was maybe different than what previous people had, had, have done is I set out with sort of a, mission originally to try to strip away all the myth and legend and get to what I thought was the true man to sort of really get down to what he really said, what he really did, what his real influence was. But as I worked on this for a year or so in the early stages of researching the book, it became clear to me that if I were to stick to, you know, the truth as best as I could find it, that I would be missing what I think is even more important about Rasputin in his story, and that is the myth, but not the myth that was created after his death, but the myth that takes hold during his lifetime. Because it became clear to me that the, mo the more important Rasputin was not the true Rasputin. The more important Rasputin was the Rasputin that Russians carried around in their heads. That the myth of Rasputin during his lifetime becomes more powerful than the real Rasputin during his lifetime which then led me to figure out why this is the case. Where did these myths come? Who's creating them? And for what purpose? And that became a fascinating way for me to tell the story of Rasputin. And I think one that is different from what you'll read in previous biographies is the degree to which the enemies of the throne on the political left created a myth of a debauched, nefarious Rasputin as a way of damaging the image and authority of the throne and so helping to lead to the downfall of the regime. At the same time, defenders of the throne, defenders of the monarchy were also creating a myth about a nefarious debauched Rasputin in the hopes of removing him from court, of getting him away from Nicholas and Alexandra and thus preserving the sanctity of the throne. So it was this strange process in which both defenders of the monarchy and critics of the monarchy were creating a Rasputin that did not really exist, but that they felt they needed as a tool, either to preserve the monarchy or to tear it down, which is a fascinating process that I outline in, in considerable detail in the book. So, so I'd like to ask you about Rasputin's role as Russia entered World War I. I guess this is a, a two-part question. How, how did he advise the Tsar, and what is the, the validity to the rumors that Rasputin was actually a German spy? Right. Well, one of the aspects of his character that I had not anticipated, that I had not really um, seen much about in the previous literature, uh, was the degree to which he was a, a true pacifist. Um, it doesn't seem to, to jibe with that well-established image of, of Rasputin as this evil sorcerer. But there's a preponderance of evidence out there that Rasputin saw war and killing as inherently wrong. And he drew this from his profound Christian faith, right? Thou shalt not kill. The killing is inherently evil and sinful. And one of the best examples we have of this is a truly remarkable letter that Rasputin wrote to the emperor, Tsar Nicholas, in the summer of 1914. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating moment in the life of Rasputin and in 20th century history overall. Rasputin was back at home in Pokrovskaya visiting his family. And he was, he was walking down the main street and he was approached by a strange woman all dressed in black with a veil over her face. She came up to him and he, he thought she must be a beggar. And he was always very generous with beggars. And he, he reached into his pocket to pull out his coin purse to give her some money. And suddenly she pulled out this 
long dagger and thrust it into his belly, screaming, I've killed the Antichrist, I've killed the Antichrist, and sat upon him, Rasputin, and he barely managed to break free from her, pull this uh, dagger out of his belly and, and, and run off down the street. The woman was was um, surrounded, and, uh, brought and put in the jail, and Rasputin ended up in a, in a hospital uh, in the city of Tumen nearby, barely clinging to life. Uh, he has to have uh, emergency surgery to sew up his wounded intestines and by some miracle, he, he doesn't uh, die from bleeding out or from infection, but manages to survive. But it's while he's lying in the hospital in Siberia that uh, Europe is, you know, plunging headlong uh, into World War One that summer of 1914. And from Siberia, Rasputin grows more and more worried that, that Nicholas is going to give in to the warmongers and is going to send Russia off to war. And he writes this truly amazing letter, pleading with Nicholas not to listen to the voices calling for war, to resist, um, you know, the the siren song of of, of conflict, um, and to keep Russia out of this European conflagration that's about to begin. And he he writes about how he sees endless seas of blood. Of, constant darkness and misery and the destruction of Russia itself. It's a truly prophetic letter. And he sent it to, to Nicholas. Of course, we know Nicholas did not heed Rasputin's advice, and Russia did go off to war that summer of 1914. And it was the war that was very much then responsible for for the downfall of, of the dynasty and the end of the Romanovs in early 1917. Nicholas apparently kept this letter close. And when he and his family were sent to Siberia after after losing the throne, he managed to sneak this letter out of captivity to Rasputin's son-in-law, a man named Boris Solovyov, who gave it to his wife Maria, Rasputin's daughter. And she later brought it out of the country with her when she fled Russia. And it passed from hand to hand and then finally made its way to Yale University, where it's now in the Beinecke Rare Book Room. And you can, you can go to Yale and... New Haven, and you can actually hold this letter in your hand. And I always think, you know, how Russian history and, and the history of Europe and the world would have been different if, if Nicholas had been able to to heed Rasputin's advice and, and keep Russia out of war that summer. The entire 20th century would have gone in a, in a very different direction. It's really, really a profound and remarkable document. It's also one of the ironies that Rasputin, who pleaded with Nicholas to stay out of the war, would later become seen as a traitor in the eyes of many Russians. Once the war began, Rasputin sided with Nicholas and remained supportive of the war effort and continued to tell him repeatedly that Russia would be victorious, that God was on their side, and that they would vanquish the Germans and the the Austrians. Of course, this, this didn't happen, but he remained committed to the war. But the war did not go well for Russia. And series of defeats and losses and shortages of of uh, armaments and things and just utter chaos at times on the front against Germany and Austria. And a lot of Russians had trouble admitting that this was due to their own inefficiencies and lack of preparedness for the war. And they became convinced that the reason Russia was doing so poorly was they must be infiltrated with spies and traitors. And it became widely believed that the head of this traitorous ring of spies must be Rasputin, working along with Alexandra, who, of course, as we know, was German-born. Um, there was never any proof to this, but it was it was really much viewed as a fact by Russians by 1916 and was very important in the events that would lead to his murder in December of, of 1916. Now, there are still some Russians. In fact, I got an email just the other day from a Russian man who's written a book on Rasputin, insisting that Rasputin was a spy. And it's it's just, to be quite simple, ludicrous. But to be doubly sure that it was ludicrous, I went to Berlin while doing my research and spent a week working in the political archive of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs there in Germany, looking for any information. And sure enough, there's a, a great deal of, of, of information on Rasputin from this period. And the, the Germans were 
were very much interested in Rasputin and where his allegiance lay at the time during World War One, and they were trying to get information on him and trying even to figure out if there was a way they could make contact with him. But it's clear from all the, the, the surviving documentation that they never made contact with Rasputin, and they could never be certain if he was someone who was open to having contact with them and maybe helping convince Nicholas to end the war or spy on them or something like that. Um, so the, the evidence shows that he never had been a spy. But what's interesting is people don't like to let go of, of things that they are convinced are truth. And this, this Russian man emailed me several times telling me that I must be wrong, that I must have misread the archives in Germany and what have you. And I kept telling him, well, no, this is what they say. I can send you uh, photos of the documents that I took. Uh, and, you know, it's there in black and white if you read German. And he just re re refused to acknowledge it and insisted that, no, I must have gotten something wrong. Um, but then again, the, there's a strain in Russia that loves conspiracies, and that's that's something that has been in Russia for a long time and, and exists up until this day. So I guess there's some people you'll just never convince of the truth. Right, right. So the death of, of Rasputin has become almost legendary, and it's often difficult to separate the facts from the myth. Can, can you walk us through the last days of his life up to his death? It's it's almost a miracle that he survived uh, up until December 1916. There was the murder attempt uh, in his village of Pokrovskaya in the summer of 1914. And then uh, a year later, the Minister of the Interior, the man in charge of all the police uh, organizations, also organized an assassination plot that, that almost got Rasputin but failed. If people know something about Rasputin, it's often the murder story that they know the best how he was impossible to kill, how he was lured to the palace of Prince Yusupov, hoping to meet Yusupov's lovely young wife. Uh, they tried to poison him with cake. They then tried to poison him with wine. They shot him. They beat him. Nothing seemed to kill him. And then finally they, they bundled him up while he was still breathing and dumped his body in a hole in the ice in a branch of the Neva River and he eventually drowned to death while making the sign of the cross as he drifted underneath the ice. It's a very dramatic story. It's a compelling story. It's a story that, that a lot of people know. But as far as I'm concerned, it's it's utterly unconvincing. And again, it's just, just one more myth of many that is told about Rasputin. And um, there's a lot of it in the book. I encourage readers to take a look. But basically, one of the things that I, I've came down with that for some reason previous biographers had not really taken the time to focus on is that the basis for this outlandish story of Rasputin's murder comes from the memoirs of Prince Felix Yusupa. So in other words, the story comes from Rasputin's murder. And people have, for some strange reason, just sort of accepted this story as fact. But I don't know since when we have taken the words of a cold-blooded murderer as the truth. Um, the way he describes what happens uh, that night in the palace is, is a naked and ugly attempt at self-justification. Um, this was a cold-blooded killing. They lured Rasputin, an unarmed man, to his death under false pretenses. And Yusupov tries in his memoirs to make himself out as a hero and the savior of Russia. Um, and in my reading... Uh, Yusupov is one of the uglier characters in the story of, of Rasputin and his life, and I try to show why that is um, in my book. He claims by killing Rasputin that he thought he was going to help save the Romanov dynasty, but in fact, as the, the great Russian poet Alexander Bloch put it, the, the bullet that killed Rasputin uh, was actually fired directly into the heart of the Romanov dynasty, and so helps basically usher in the beginning of the Russian Revolution and the downfall of the monarchy, not not uh, an attempt to really save it. Is there a historical record about what happens to his body? Yeah, there's. Um, we know um, there was an investigation, and there's a file in a museum that I uh, refer to in my book about the body and what happens to it. He's pulled out of the ice um, and is then buried uh, outside one of the Tsar's palaces outside Petersburg. But then after the revolution, the, the body is dug up and is burned in mysterious circumstances. And there's no more grave 
that anyone can now go to and uh, pay their final respects to Grigory Rasputin. One last question. What do people of modern-day Russia think of Rasputin? I know that you've already mentioned the opinion of the, the man that you've been communicating with via email, <laughs> but but in, in general terms, is, is he seen as an important historical figure? I would argue no. Um, I, I'd, I wish I could say that, yes, he's someone that people still talk a lot about and argue and debate. But no, there's, you know, there's so much water under the bridge um, since Rasputin's murder a century ago, all the dramatic things that would happen in the 20th century, particularly the revolution, the civil war following the revolution, 19, you know, 18 up until 1920, 21, and then World War II, um, the horrors of Stalinism. He sort of, uh, I would say, gotten pushed aside and into the background, given the horrible and, and dramatic things that were to come in the next hundred years. For listeners interested in your book and your work, where can we direct them? Your, your books. Books, yeah. I, the best place would be to, to start at my website, which is www.douglassmith.info. And there's uh, information on, on my books and uh, other activities and things, uh, documentaries that I've been involved in. And, um, yeah, I just encourage everyone to take a look. Rasputin is is infinitely fascinating. Um, but even if you're not a Rasputin buff, I've written on several books on the 18th century on Catherine the Great and other subjects. So there's bound to be something there that'll interest somebody. Well, this has been great. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Wonderful to talk to you. Again, Douglas Smith's book is called Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, available online and at fine bookstores near you. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Join me at CrimeCon this year in Indianapolis, June 9th to 11th. I'd love to meet you in person. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.